Hey, and welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I'm your host. It's great to be with you. Just wanted to give a brief update on the pod before we get into today's content. I'm going to be taking a couple weeks off. I've got my next guest lined up as Ram Hazoni, and we'll be talking about nationalism. He wrote a very compelling book on that topic, and he is the leader of the Edmund Burke Foundation, and he that foundation puts on national conservatism as well. So if you've got questions or you've read the book, uh, shoot it my way so that we can have a great conversation coming up here after the Thanksgiving break. I'm going to be taking a couple weeks off just because we've got ETS in Denver, Evangelical Theological Society in Denver, and that's going to be a busy week next week, and then we've got Thanksgiving the week after that. So a couple busy weeks coming up. going to give myself some breathing room there. If you haven't been paying attention, there is a uh, I released a Patreon on the church called City on a Hill in Australia. Uh, Guy Mason is the pastor there. And he recently got into some controversy down in Australia. I actually brought that episode live uh, behind from behind the paywall so that everyone could listen to it. There's been a good discussion over at Mere Orthodoxy between Tim Keller and another guy. Um, one, I can't remember his name right now. I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. But he wrote on how Aaron Rand and James Wood were right. And the story at City on a Hill validates it. And then Tim Keller wrote a response basically saying they're wrong or that article was wrong in the assessment of the situation. And I was like, well, I've talked about it. So I brought that up. So you can go find that in the podcast feed. I would go listen to that. Um, that's just going to be available for a few days. So if you're listening to that, to this episode now, and it's not available, that's incentive for you to sign up on the Patreon so you can hear kind of my perspective on that. And I actually bring a bit of a different perspective considering most of the articles don't pay attention that, to the fact that Guy Mason preached to, uh, a sermon advocating for transgender rights uh, about a month before uh, the controversy ensued over the church's kind of stance. And then Guy Mason recently preached at the Village Church in Dallas. And so there's there's a lot more to the story than most people are paying attention to. So I try to bring that up in the episode. So go sign up with the Patreon. That's going to be the way that you can stay current with that kind of content. I think I'm going to do an episode coming up on Eric Mason. And he was part of Action Man for a long time, a man that I've learned from. And so I think it'd be useful for people to kind of understand his relationship with both the network and where he is now. And uh, he wrote a book called Woke Church, which is obviously controversial now. At the time, it wasn't as controversial in most circles. And so I think I'm going to do a Patreon-only episode on that. So you're going to want to stay tuned for all that content. So sign up on the Patreon. There's a link that you can sign up on. Today, I wanted to dive into a topic that I've touched on in a variety of ways on the podcast before. But I want to bring some maybe fresh insight to it, some things that were, I was thinking about this week in terms of the church, mission, and nationalism. And really, I have been a, a guy that doesn't really adopt the phrase Christian nationalist. Uh, I have friends that do, and um, I understand why. Um, but And I'm not afraid of the literature surrounding it, and I'm reading the case for Christian nationalism right now. It's great, very dense, uh, very well thought out argument. And I would recommend it to anyone to go read it. It just came out and it was a bestseller on Amazon. But as I've been thinking about all this stuff, um, it you know, I wanted to share a bit of my story, my own relationship with church and mission and evangelism, church planting, becoming a pastor, going into ministry, and my thoughts on the nation. And like I said, I've talked about this before, but really the angle I want to bring today is a little bit different. I want to connect it to a couple of just key perspectives on the missional movement missionaries, and the Great Commission. So those are kind of the three headings. So the first is the missional movement uh, itself, 
really is kind of a seeker-sensitive 2.0 adaptation to cultural engagement. It's a way to think about how do we engage culture. Um, Keller highlights this in the article about Leslie Newbigin. I still read, use, and teach Newbigin at our church, and so Newbigin can be very helpful for cultural matters and thinking through kind of the erosion of Christendom and that kind of thing. But the missional movement, kind of by and large, since I've been part of it for the last decade and a half, has really uh, positioned itself as a a mode, a strategy of cultural engagement. Now, a lot of the people in the missional movement would just say, we're just getting back to the Bible. In fact, I've, I've taught that before. And I understand why they operate that way. Most people who are starting something new uh, typically want to associate, especially Christians, want to associate it with being biblical. And so no harm, no foul there. That makes sense that somebody would make that argument. But I think that their strategy has been really kind of exposed to the fact that it is more of a modern strategy. And so the missional movement kind of prides itself on being biblical when I would just say they're just trying to think creatively about how to meet the meet the times we're in. And for that particular strategy, it seems to have not, not passed necessarily, but the, the tactics and tools they've used seem to have not been sufficient enough to meet the hour we're in. And so that's a lot of the rethinking going on in evangelicalism is rethinking missional. What missional typically works itself out as is on the ground with churches. Um, and so you'll see churches adopting certain kind of postures towards their city. You'll get phrases like in the city for the city. You'll get all sorts of kind of concepts in the missional movement. And so I just wanted to highlight one example. Uh, when we moved to Boulder, you know, the idea was that we should adopt really everything about Boulder to be true of us. And so anything that was from our former culture, um, what they call disenculturation, we should get rid of. And anything that is part of our new culture, we should adopt. So I should become a fan of the CU buffs. I should adopt kind of the the cultural sensibilities of my context, that kind of thing. And so that's what it means kind of on the ground. You can you can talk about the ideal, ideological components behind the concept of being missional, whether it's good or other other academics or thinkers you want to interact with. But when it gets on the ground, most pastors are encouraged to really dress and eat and behave like the culture around them. And you see this in church history with William Carey and other people. Um, when they go and start a new work for Christ and a new context, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with thinking through some of these implications for how you're going to reach that context. I mean, this is why missionaries typically like to learn the, the language of the culture that they're in so that they can converse with people. Um, and that makes sense. And so when you go into a new culture, you have to do this, but what often happens in the missional movement is you get churches that typically will, well, they'll just avoid, particularly on the political matters and cultural matters, anything that, that would confront the culture um, because they want to come in and they want to be attractive to people and they want people to come to their church. Um, and if you come in and you land in Boulder and you immediately just start sounding like everything that Boulder's against, well, you're going to have a hard time planting a church. And so there's just real practical, uh, pragmatic implications of kind of the missional thing. And really that's what the missional thing for me is. It's a pragmatic approach to mission on the ground. Now, you could, like I said, you could talk about the ideology, the books, literature, and there's a lot there. But when it comes to on the ground, what most pastors are getting is kind of a pragmatic approach to church planting, to church growth, which is supposed to be attractive to the surrounding culture so that you can grow a church, establish a church in that culture for Christ. So that's kind of how it works. Um, a key way this plays out is with sports teams and politics is the way I think of it. 
So sports teams, it's typically you're going to adopt, you know, the home hometown uh, team. Um, Boulder, that doesn't really track well because the team isn't very good and the Broncos aren't very good either. So there's not a lot of sports enthusiasm in Colorado. There, there's a regional enthusiasm for the Broncos out here because it's Denver's the biggest city within 500 miles. And so it has a significant cultural ethos to be a fan of the Broncos. But in Boulder particularly, people don't care about the NFL unless they're painting the end zone, uh, saying end racism and that kind of thing. Um, but the same thing happens with politics. And so you'll get pastors that come in and start to adopt the pol- political leanings of their local context. They won't, don't want to confront kind of the reality that most of their neighbors have secular creedal signs in their yards with, you know, Black Lives Matter, women's rights, um, all, all the kind of like propaganda that people are putting up. They don't want to sound contrary to that. And so they typically want to harmonize or seek to, you could call it, if you want to be really cynical, syncretization. Um, they wouldn't call it that, but that, that, that does seem to be at play in some ways. And so I see a lot of pastors where they take this missional idea and it becomes a missional kind of pragmatism where it's like, it's going to be uncomfortable to speak about God's views on politics in this context. And so we're going to kind of avoid the hard truths about abortion or other matters in favor of soft truths, whether it's about the environment or creation care, that's typically how they phrase environmentalism and evangelical Christianity is creation care. Now they're getting into justice, you know, they'll get matters of creation, uh, justice and that kind of thing. But they typically will end up voting, behaving, thinking uh, like the political climate of their city. That that becomes really problematic um, as the culture erodes and as uh, kind of the, the ethos, particularly in the American context, is more secular. And you get a bunch of people like in Montana just recently in the last election, they voted to where there was a ballot measure to preserve the life of children uh, after they were born, uh, particularly in this ballot measure, it was about abortive procedures. And so if that child would, uh, was born alive after abortive proce- procedure, should the child be given care to keep it alive? And Montana voted no against that. 220,000 people, uh, last I saw, voted no against that. And that was the majority. And so in Montana, they struck down a law to keep babies alive outside the womb. And so that's tragic. And when you go into a culture and plant a church like that, I think missional is, is going to be a, a, a really hard thing to do because you're going to have to stand on the truth of the word of God and really confront the barbarism of our culture, the the, the savagery of our culture that would kind of promote these ideas that that that's acceptable. And so that's kind of the background of missional, but it really gets into the, the idea of, of missionaries. Um, being a missionary was something I wanted to be for a long time. I'm not opposed to uh, being a missionary, that being a missionary is a good thing. Um, going to the nations for Christ, good thing. Um, in the Southern Baptist church that I grew up in, missionaries were treated like Navy SEALs, like the best, the, the best Christians. And so as a young Christian, you want to please God, you want to honor God, and every Christian does, but particularly as a young person, if you're trying to follow Christ, you're really taking seriously what he teaches. And then the church culture really highlights missionaries as like, these are the, these are our people, these are the best Christians. Well, then young people kind of adopt kind of an attitude of like, well, I want to be a good Christian, I want to be the best Christian I can be, therefore I should be a missionary. And so that's where a lot of kind of my sense of like, I wanted to be a missionary came from. Um, and that's not necessarily wrong, that's just part of kind of development in a particular culture, in a particular church context. But what typically happens is there's a lot of pressure on young people, especially in the last 30 years, to go abroad, uh, to go 
somewhere else to kind of invest in other nations. And so a lot of Christians feel like they have to go, like they should go, like if they don't go, they're lesser Christians, they're not as good of Christians. Um, and so in order to really follow Christ, you have to be radical. And so you get this radical culture, uh, David Platt, and you get these Christians that are very much like, it would be better to invest my talents and resources in other nations rather than our own nation and other people groups other than my own people group. And so there becomes kind of a, a self-selecting preference for other people groups over your own people group. Now, uh, I'll get into this later in the show, and we'll talk more about that. But what, what typically happens is they trade on the underlying ethics of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's about dying uh, to oneself or anything like that. Um, and they typically trade on those underlying ethics of Christ and the gospel, but they do in a way that's really totalizing and obliterates any kind of uh, natural and biblical connections to either one's family or one nation. Uh, we'll talk about Jesus saying how, you know, we should be able to uh, turn away from our father and mother, let the dead bury their dead, and really just uh, be sold out for Christ. And, you know, in no way would I ever uh, teach that contrary to the Bible. I just think we've misunderstood what, what Jesus is getting after in the Sermon on the Mount. And we do so in a way that obliterates kind of natural affections for one's family, for one's people, for one's nation. And so Christians develop kind of an inherent, at least young Christians, at least the way I was taught, and I, this this may be, maybe it's not true for you, but at least the Christian culture I was raised in, there's kind of a, an inherent, like, you should despise your own people, your own place, in favor of other people and places. That's, of course, not necessarily taught, but that's kind of what's uh, kind of deduced from the principles. Um, so there's a lot of obliteration of caring for one's family, thinking about how to do that well. And really, it develops into an inherent hatred of kind of the principle of either self-interest or self-preservation. These things are seen as unchristian. And so you'll see this in a lot of uh, evangelical churches, cultures, Christians in America, particularly where the idea of self-preservation or voting in a way or behaving in a way that would preserve your own life would be contrary to the gospel. And so a big proponent of this would be like Scott Sauls, if you follow him on Twitter, which I would recommend you do because you can actually see the underlying worldview uh, behind his literature, which is very popular uh, for a lot of Christians. And you can kind of see a, a despising of both power, self-interest, and self-preservation. There's a lot of talk about there in terms of theological anthropology and how people kind of conceive of themselves and and uh, love themselves. The you know the principle Jesus trades on is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. The assumption is that we love ourselves. And that self-love is not something that is denigrated by Christ, but actually kind of utilized by Christ to build upon, to highlight the intensity of his demands, of the demands of God's law, and the expectations for God's law, and the sacrificial love that we're supposed to have. Um, but in Protestant, in, in evangelical Christianity in America, you kind of get this, paired with this pressure to go abroad, you get kind of an inherent hatred of self-interest and self-preservation. So getting a job that pays well to provide for your family, is, is seen as not admirable, it would be better to have nothing. Um, and kind of like taking a job close to family or taking a job that would be in the best interest of your family. These kind of things are seen as, uh, you know, pursuing worldly means, pursuing worldly ends. And so you get kind of this evangelical culture in America that's against self-interest, against self-preservation, and really wants to send our best and brightest abroad. 
um, to export kind of our young people to other nations. And like I said, being a missionary is a good and noble thing. And that's great. If that's what God has led you to do, to go to a different place uh, in a new context, to reach those people with the good news of Jesus, God bless you. That's awesome. Our church supports those people. I have friends that have done that. Um, but at least from my experience, I've seen a lot of Christians kind of burn out, um, if you want to use that kind of common colloquial term, which I kind of shy away from most of the time. Burnout is typically just uh, a cover for a lot of other things, people not Sabbathing well, other things like that. But you'll see a lot of Christians who get disenchanted with evangelical Christianity because as a young Christian, they made a decision to either go into ministry or go into the mission field because they viewed that as the most Christ-like thing they could do. And that's just because we've taught the Sermon on the Mount and other ethics of Christ inappropriately. Um, but the evangelical leadership in America really has very little to say about these matters. They don't really talk about these matters. Um, it's actually a very self-interested, self-preservation strategy they have, because if they were to talk about this, their donor base and their kind of pipeline of next-gen leaders would dry up if they were to encourage people not to get involved in their parachurch organization um, because they should just go get a job that uh, that pays well and provides for their family. Uh, all of a sudden that would that would run contrary to their own kind of self-preservation. So that's a that's a bit ironic when you think about it. Um, but yep, most young people get in ministry are really never encouraged to count the cost. Um, counting the cost gets reduced to like, do you love Jesus more than your family? It's like, well, yeah, well, then you'll do this. Um, you'll do these types of activities for Christ. Um, you'll get into these kind of vocations for Christ. And in fact, counting the cost, if you were to really sit down and go like, what, what am I good at? What has God called me to do? This gets into the question of calling, which I could do a whole episode on that. I'm not going to talk that much at length today about calling, but this idea of calling when, when you count the cost, um, if you, if you count the cost too much, if you're wrestling with like, should I go get a job that pays well and makes money? Should I get a career that does that? Um, so I can provide for my family, so I can, you know, advance Christ's kingdom. Um, that becomes kind of a, a self-reinforcing belief where if you're if you're taking that seriously, uh, making money, uh, that be, that gets reduced to almost this turning away from Christ, where if I'm trying to make money, well, then I, I must be worshiping money. Um, and so it's a self-reinforcing thing where it becomes a spiral of pietism, where if I try to make money, then I'm turning away from Christ. Therefore, I need to take a job that pays less or take a risk for Christ. And like I said, you get into the radical culture, you get into kind of Francis Chan's ideologies um, that he brings into kind of his literature, where there's just a lot of pressure on young Christians who grow up in evangelical, just generic evangelical churches, who are, who see kind of the enthusiasm for Christ with with speakers like Platt, um, who's very emotional um, when he when he kind of pleads with people. Uh, to sell everything they have. And, and this is what Jesus taught, you know, to the rich young rulers, be willing to go sell everything you have. Well, they take that in a totalizing way and say every Christian should do that then. Um, or at least that's the, that's the message that gets re it, it gets reduced to in a lot of, you know, small groups and parachurch ministries. And, and so um, when in fact, that's not what that that illustration and that that real event uh, with the rich young ruler and Jesus that's not necessarily the the conclusion we should make uh, for all people all the time. It's that we should be willing to do that. Yes, we should be willing to do that. We should not worship money. Um, 
And so that, that's kind of where it gets worked out. And really this plays out in the Great Commission. There's a great emphasis in evangelicalism for the Great Commission. And this is a biblical, this isn't, I'm not saying that that's a peculiarity or something wrong. That's Christian, right? The Great Commission is in the Bible. Part of the reason I wrote my book, Trinitarian Formation, uh, was because I wanted to understand the Great Commission more. I want to understand what it meant when Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them, teaching them to serve everything that he's commanded us and baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this gets into really, to me, kind of the, the meat of the matter with how we understand the Great Commission. Is the Great Commission, does it have to do with individuals and nations, or does it have to do with ethna, ethnos, um, ethnes, uh, nations like as people groups? Um, and, and really, I don't even need to prove whatever you take Matthew 28 to mean, which I would take it to mean what it says, ethne, people groups, nations, um, Whatever you take that to mean, you, I don't have to prove this from Matthew 28. I can just look at the Old Testament, how God talks about people groups, how God talks about ethnic, uh, ethnicities um, in general, nations in general. I can look back at the Old Testament and prove it that way. I can also look at the New, uh, New Testament, look at Revelation, the end of the story and where things are going. And I can show that, look, those nations are there. And Christ is currently the ruler of all nations or, or ethnies. And so these particular ethnies have have uh, a particular culture about them. They're people groups, uh, they're groups of people and, and uh, social contracts, social connections together. And they've formed different cultures and foods and, and music and cultures. And so there's something about those cultures that are worth preserving. And this is where it really gets the rubber meets the road is those cultures are worth, some things in those cultures are worth preserving. And so then the question becomes, is there, are there things in our culture and our nation that are worth preserving? And as soon as you talk about preserving and self-preservation, a lot of Christians get uncomfortable. They get really uncomfortable with that. But really what we've done is we've traded kind of a vision for the King of Kings, who's Christ over nations. That's what he is right now um, for really a, a different vision. And so we've adopted um, over this last, you know, 20th century, kind of this idea of the American melting pot kind of like anyone can come in and it's just a big melting pot. We all blend together. Um, and there's no like uh, kind of cultural formation that, that carries on the culture of our fathers. There's more of a melting pot uh, kind of identity and this multicultural identity. And a lot of Christians have taken kind of the 20th century multiculturalism melting pot mentality and they've baptized it and called it Christian. And so you see this in a lot of uh, church cultures, uh, parachurch ministries, and um, what they do is they just kind of blend worship styles, blend all the stuff, because that's part of the melting pot ethos. And they try to make Revelation say what, what the melting pot ethos, multiculturalism teaches, which is that we all just kind of blend together in the worship of Christ. And, you know, there, there is something beautiful to, to hearing other Christians worship in different languages. Um, that can be a beautiful thing. But there's something also to be said for when you go into a people group, we should learn their culture, learn their language, and worship Christ in their language and in their culture. Yeah, I saw this, I heard about this story over in Eastern Europe with uh, the war in Ukraine, and you had Ukrainian refugees worshiping Poland, and the Polish churches were like, we're going to try to worship in uh, their language. And the Ukrainians were like, no, we're in Poland, like we should worship in your language. Um, and so it's a really interesting just example of kind of where the melting pot kind of fails is it's like, that's not the goal. The goal isn't a melting pot. There's still nations uh, when Christ returns and those nations will all worship Christ. 
And so that's where it's all going. And so I think going back to the main point for the for kind of uh, churches, church leaders, what uh, Christians and, and evangelical leadership, uh, what we really need to be encouraging young people to do is really uh, figure out how to obey the command to honor their father and mother, um, how to live that out in our culture, how we have a duty to our family, how we have a duty to our nation, and what it might look like for their for them to invest their missional zeal, that zeal for the Lord, here and in this country. And so that's where I think a lot of it comes down to, for me, a lot of the passion, because, you know, when I was growing up, I just didn't really consider that. I didn't consider what does it look like to honor my mother and father in terms of uh, getting a career, a vocation, investing deeply here, where where we can love Christ in the workplace, we can love Christ through our vocations, through culture building here. And if you want to go be a missionary and you feel like that's what God has called you to, God bless you. That's that's amazing. But a lot of times we pressurize um, evangelical Christians, young Christians, to go abroad. And really, there seems to be, I think, part of the conversation on nationalism and part of the conversation on national identity and that kind of thing really butts up against this this enthusiasm, the spiritual enthusiasm um, to take seriously what Christ has commanded to be able to sell all you have and turn away from your mother and father. And unfortunately, what a lot of uh, at least evangelical established establishment has done has kind of taught this idea that grace obliterates nature instead of grace completing nature. And so there's this idea that we should um, like anything that's a natural affection, a natural connection, kind of the order of loves with Augustine. Those things should be obliterated because that's what Jesus taught. And that's not what Jesus taught. And so there has to be a, a biblical understanding of what it means to be sent, what it means to go and preach the gospel to the nations. But I really think it, it's, it would be prudent for evangelical leaders, church leaders, uh, Christian leaders to not put so much pressure on young Christians to get into ministry um, as if ministry is the, the only and best way that they can kind of prove their allegiance to Christ. I, I disciple young Christians all the time who are involved with parachurch ministries at uh, CU Boulder, whether it's NAVs or crew. And really the way a lot of those parachurch ministries work is they, you know, it's kind of a pi leadership pipeline where they get the freshmen, they put them in a freshman Bible study. Then out of those freshmen, they select leaders to lead the freshman Bible study. And then eventually, if you stay on long enough, they're going to encourage you to join staff. And so you see this kind of pipeline of, uh, I refer to it as the para parachurch industrial complex, where it's like you get these networks of people who are kind of like constantly feeding each other that like what we're doing is important. And to be to be part of important work, you need to be involved in it. And that's the best way you can honor Christ. And so, like, for example, I met with one young couple of years ago and this this question, this concern keeps coming up. And it's a guy at my church and he was curious about whether he should join staff or or go get a master's and go into a professional degree. And, you know, my encouragement to him was like, what do you want? What do you want? And this was a question Jesus has asked Jesus asked all the time. He's like, well, I don't want to go on staff. And I was like, so don't like you don't you don't have to to be a good Christian, go on staff with either a church or go to go be a missionary. Um, you can just be a good church member. Be, uh, I want to raise a generation of churchmen who love God's church. Uh, who want to see God's church flourish, who are part of it, who show up on Sundays, who uh, who advance uh, kind of Christ's cause in the workplace and in the world, who share the gospel, love their neighbor, and 
you know, it's, it's good to want to sell everything we have to follow Christ. That's, that's a virtue of, of Christians. We should, we should have that attitude about us. We shouldn't worship money. But I think what we tend to do is we kind of obliterate young Christians kind of vision for what, what it means to have a vocation, a calling. We put a lot of pressure on them to get into ministry. And this is why, honestly, I think I see so many ministers quitting, um, seeing so many people leave ministry is because they got disenchanted. They they were kind of sold this bill of goods where this is going to be a life that's most pleasing to Christ. Therefore, I'm going to join it and get involved in it and uh, kind of to hell with any other aspirations, ambitions, or allegiances I may have in my life uh, because this is what matters the most. Um, and I think that just really does a disservice to young people. It doesn't help them kind of like understand what Jesus taught. It obliterates kind of the biblical narrative and it does a great disservice to a lot of people and actually produces a lot of harm in people's lives, a lot of uh, unneeded suffering um, where, you know, they're, they're really self-sabotaging and avoiding stepping into uh, taking responsibility, particularly men. And when, in, when in fact, they should be encouraged to take responsibility for the country, take responsibility for their family, uh, get married, have kids, get a job, do these things and live a good, quiet life. Um, and I, so I think these things are important things to consider in the broader evangelical landscape. Uh, when we think about mission, when we think about being missionaries, when we think about being Christians with a vocation in the workplace, uh, in the world, advocating the cause of Christ in all spheres of life. I think these are just really important concerns that I've had over the last 10 years that I, I've just now come to a place where I feel like, okay, I, yeah, I feel a strong conviction on this matter. I've been pastoring people this way. So I just wanted to share a couple of examples, a couple of thoughts with you. Um, let me know what you think. Uh, share a comment in, on the YouTube. Uh, that's where you can share comments or, or even on Patreon. We can get a conversation started on this. Have you, have you sensed this pressure? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Is, am I the only one that's kind of like sensing this or has experienced this? Because I don't think I am, but I'd love to hear from you. What do you think? How can we better equip young Christians, kind of the next generation, uh, to to love Christ more in the world? So that's all I wanted to talk about for today's episode. Hopefully it was helpful for you. Sign up on the Patreon so that we can keep great content coming to you. Um, let me know who you'd love to see as a next guest, because uh, I'm scheduling those out. And until I get Yoram Fazoni on the next podcast, I will see you then.